This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28. As we look together at this passage from Luke 9, 28 to verse 36. Luke chapter 9, beginning there in verse 28. This is God's word. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray we would stand amazed in your presence. And we pray that we would see you as you truly are as you're revealed to us in the scriptures, the Holy Son of God. Lord, we pray, especially for those among us that may not be that impressed, who may see this as a a normal thing. Lord, would you open eyes? Would you humble hearts? Lord, we pray that we would see you and savor you, worship you, be satisfied in you, behold your glory, and that that would change us, conform us to be more like you. We might reflect that glory. Come, we pray. Bless this time. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. I could imagine the disciples uh, being discouraged at this point in Luke's gospel a bit, having heard Jesus describe what he's about to do. He's described his uh, kind of career as a Messiah, as one who's going to suffer and be rejected and die. And then he began to talk with the disciples about them taking up their cross and denying themselves and following him. So perhaps we find them at a place of confusion 
and discouragement. If you look back with me in chapter 9 at the end of that section on discipleship, remember what it said there in verse 27? Jesus said, I tell you, truly there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And we said the closest, kind of the nearest place from that, that promise um, in its fulfillment would be this text before us here, the, the transfiguration. So, so much of our discipleship, our faith involves believing without seeing, waiting on God's promises, trusting in God's character and goodness. I think that's by God's design. But here, there is a glory sighting. Even if only a glimpse. Jesus takes his inner three, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain to show them the kingdom. They will see it with their own eyes. Now, this isn't the first time that God has um, taken some of his uh, servants who might have been discouraged or perplexed up to a mountain to show them his glory. Uh, the prophet Elijah found himself afraid and on the run from Jezebel in 1 Kings 19, if you remember that story. Interestingly, kind of at the tail end there, he is, finds himself wandering in the wilderness, asking if he could die. But the angel of the Lord comes and miraculously feeds him in the wilderness with bread and water. And then 40 days later, he finds himself on a mountain, Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai. Those are just familiar points of contact, aren't they? There, Elijah meets with the Lord. The Lord passes by him. But not in a way that we would discern. He passes by in the form of wind and an earthquake and fire. But it says the Lord was not in the wind. He was not in the earthquake. He was not in the fire. He was in this low whisper to Elijah. And he instructs him on what to do next. And so he meets with the Lord. He's not able to fully perceive the Lord, but he meets with the Lord. But probably the most famous mountain meeting, right, happens between God and Moses. He learns while on the mountain with God that down below the people of Israel have already gone off. He took too long and made an idol. That could be potentially discouraging for a leader. But he intercedes for them and the Lord hears his plea and in that conversation, Moses asked the simple request, Exodus 33, 18, Lord, please show me your glory. Show me your glory. Uh, in other words, I want to see you. I want to see all of you. And the Lord responds with both kind of a note of mercy and a reminder of his sovereignty that I'm the Lord, I will show mercy to whom I will. But also he allows his goodness to again pass before Moses. He couldn't see his full glory, especially his face. We read in Exodus 33.20, man cannot see my face and live, he says. Moses was hidden from the full glory in the cleft of the rock and was able to see the Lord's back as he passed and proclaimed his name. And it was all said and done, Moses came down from the mountain. And we read in Exodus 34, the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. So much so that he had to wear a veil because people would be freaked out to talk to him. That is important background context, isn't it, for our passage 
today. Isn't it great that God has inspired a book? And He's given us this book to know Him and and to study. And in that book, we find more and more of Him and His great grand plan and story. Here we see the kingdom because we see the King. And Luke has set it up brilliantly by just letting these questions of Jesus' identity linger. Is He a prophet raised from the dead? Is He Elijah? Is He Moses? Well, maybe we can rule that out now. The crowd gets it twisted. Herod is confused and afraid. Peter gets really close with his confession of Christ as the Messiah, but still only partially right, understanding it. But here in this passage, God the Father, He just settles the matter. The voice from heaven makes it clear who Jesus is and how we should respond to Him. And so I just want to frame the sermon around this idea of of learning about who Jesus is from this text. What do we learn about Jesus from the transfiguration? And I'm going to boil it down to three observations. Boil it down to three observations. If you're taking notes, here they are. Number one, we see Jesus here on the Mount of Transfiguration as as God the Son. Jesus is God the Son. Number one. Number two, we see that Jesus is the Word of God. Number two, Jesus is the Word of God. And then number three, Jesus is the way to God. The way to God. Okay? So, God the Son, Word of God, way to God. And I, and I think we should adopt Moses' prayer in Exodus 33, 18. Not just this morning, but every morning. Lord, show me your glory, especially in the face of Jesus Christ. So, that's observation number one. What do we see about this text about Jesus? Observation number one, Jesus is God the Son. Again, we see that Jesus prays. He's praying here before this revelation that is given of Himself. Verse 28, now about eight days after these sayings. So it positions us with these sayings. I think connects us what we said about those who won't taste death. But eight days afterwards, he, took, he takes Peter, John, and James, and they go up to the mountain to pray. Jesus draws his inner three into this deeper fellowship with him through prayer. So Christian, if you want to know more of Jesus, to treasure Jesus more, to take his words more seriously, to see his value more clearly, to be satisfied more deeply in him, I think this is a great model. Pray. Ask the Lord. Ask the Lord. Go to him in prayer. If you want that for others that you love, pray with them. Pray for them. Pray that the, the preaching at this church would be, this would be a regular occasion where Jesus' glory is, is made manifest, where we see Jesus lifted high above all else. I think it's a really good goal for a prayer meeting to know more, love more, and see more of Jesus. Uh, many of us gather on Sundays at 8.45 in the choir room to pray. We pray for the day, for the Lord's day. You're welcome to come. 8.45 on Sundays, we'd love for you to come and ask the Lord to glorify himself through the ministry of this church. We have prayer meetings on the second and fourth weeks of our, uh, of our, of our um, Sundays. We want to encourage you to come to those and join us in praying. And, and this is really our heart agenda. We would know more, see more of Christ lifted high. 
It's as he's praying that we read in verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. That word transfigured, as Matt mentioned, it's not you know, a common word that we use a lot. It essentially just means changed. Okay? It, it means change. It's a form of the word metamorphosis. Um, and so I, I would call what Luke says here in verse 29 a bit of an, of an understatement. His face was altered. Yes, yes, it was. But it gets stronger. His clothes were like dazzling white. Other gospel authors describe his clothes um, as white like light or uh, glistening, uh, so very white. No bleacher on earth could bleach them. That's Mark 9. A literal description of what uh, Luke is saying about Jesus' face is that his face was other. It It became other. Matthew describes his face as shining like the sun, just to give us some context. Shining like the sun. I think that's helpful. So, so what are we, what's happening here? What do we see going on? For a brief moment, the veil of Jesus' humanity is being lifted. And his true essence is allowed to shine through. So in the incarnation, Jesus puts on flesh. But the glory that was always there is still there. And the depths of him is now here, rising to the surface at this moment in his earthly ministry. Jesus is truly God and truly man, but part of the incarnation, really some of the definition of the incarnation, is humiliation. His humiliation, him humbling himself, taking on the limitations of human flesh. So the disciples have seen Jesus do what only God could do, But now they see the glory of God shining through Jesus himself in his person. Jesus prayed in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. He says this, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you from before the world existed. So it's some of that glory that we're seeing here in Luke 9. Unlike Moses' face that was shining because he was talking, speaking with God, Jesus' face is shining because he is God. He's not reflecting glory. He's the source of glory. Moses is to the moon, right, as Jesus is to the sun. Moses is reflecting glory. Jesus is the glory. The vast majority of humanity will only see Jesus like this after we die. That's, I think, the point of verse, chapter 9, verse 27. You won't taste death like everyone else. You're going to see it before you taste death. And these three get a glimpse of his glory. Verse 32, they saw his glory. And the they includes more than just Peter, James, and John. Look at verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses And Elijah, we just fly by that a lot of times. But that's significant. Moses has been gone for 1,400 years. Elijah for 900 years. And they show up. They're talking to Jesus. Friends, we should just observe, just in passing, there is life after death. Uh, This is not the end. These guys lived and died a long life, and now they're back. 
and they're standing before Jesus. I just want to try to see some things from their perspective for a moment. Think about their lives. They both came to a place in their ministries where God essentially retired them. Elijah handed off his ministry to Elijah, Elisha rather, and Moses to Joshua. Both of them had very interesting departures from earth. Uh, and, and we would maybe put death in quotes. Elijah was just taken up in a chariot of fire, kind of transposed into glory. And Moses dies on Mount Nebo in this interesting way. And he dies before the Lord and God buries him in a place where no one really knows. An unknown place. So they both, and they, they of course have these encounters with God's glory, which I mentioned some in the introduction but never saw it in its fullness, and its fulfillment. But this is what I love, is that here we see Moses' prayer in Exodus 33, 18 answered, don't we? Show me your glory. And now he is staring into the shining, transcendent glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's looking at his face. That's what he wanted to see. Paul says in Colossians 2.9, For in Him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's what they're seeing. Paul tells the Corinthians that this is where we see the glory of God most fully and clearly. 2 Corinthians 4.6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You want to see God's glory? Look to Jesus. What a kindness to display his glory for these young, confused, discouraged disciples and for these very, very old and dead prophets. But the confirmation goes even further, right? Even deeper. Look at verse 35. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Very much parallels what happened at Jesus' baptism. If you remember in Luke 3.22, another voice from heaven, the Spirit descends. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Again, the Father is just making explicit who Jesus is. My Son, my chosen one. So my Son, again, connections with the Messiah, the Messianic figure, the Anointed One, who is also a Son in Psalm 2. And then here, this chosen one language is a little bit more unique to Luke, but it especially harkens back to places that we see this use of, of, of the suffering servant in Isaiah 42. And so that, that title of servant is connected with the chosen one. Isaiah 42.1, an example, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That's who Jesus is. That's the, 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 the message. The glorious Messiah servant who is God the Son. Of course, you read on in Isaiah and we learn that the servant will offer his life as a sacrifice for God's people. Wounded for their transgressions, crushed for their iniquities, that they could be counted righteous by God. So, so calling him the Son who is the servant, the chosen one, God the Father is confirming everything Jesus has just said about what's going to happen to him, his prediction of his suffering and death. He's glorifying Jesus for his suffering for our salvation. Friends, Luke is giving this to us that we would read it and know, okay, 
God the Father is settling the matter of Jesus' identity. He wants it to be settled. Luke says in chapter 1, to have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Trust the testimony of the Father that is so merciful, speaking now out loud. This is my Son. Not only do we learn that Jesus is the Son, the Chosen One, but right after that, we should do something about it. We should listen to Him. And that leads to the second observation about Jesus from this text. So, number two, Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. Try to think about this a little bit from the perspective of Moses and Elijah, but now let's try to see it from the perspective of the disciples. Pick it up in verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. We know this is an unfortunate pattern for the disciples, uh, being heavy with sleep. You know that feeling where it's just heavy, like you just cannot hold your eyelids open with your hands. I know the feeling well. They tend to fall asleep at the most important moments in Jesus' ministry. When he reveals himself, that's when they're the most sleepy. But I love this, this picture, kind of tracks their, their development as disciples, asleep awakened to his glory. And so they awake and see the glory and the two men standing with him. Now, I don't know when or how they realize that this is Moses and Elijah. It'd be great to know how they knew that. Maybe it's through listening to the conversation that they're having. I think that's a key. Or perhaps Jesus just makes it clear in some other way. But they awaken to this amazing scene. And Peter is just sensing, like, this is really good. And we need to keep this going. And so he comes up with an idea, verse 33. And as the men were parting from, from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. If you're ever looking for a mountaintop experience, we use that word a lot, this is it, right? This is a mountaintop experience, and by definition, we want to keep it going. We want to stay up there and not come down. He wants to extend it as long as he can, and so he gives this, this uh, suggestion of the three tents. Um, again, I don't think Peter is that off in his instincts, probably just his timing. It's not the time we know for just standing around and basking in glory. There is a mission that's, that something is going to happen. Listen, I think heaven is going to be a place where we're going to say, we just want to keep this going. This is really good that we're here. And it's going to keep going and going and going and going and only get better. But that time has not yet come. Another problem, I think, with Peter's idea is that it probably reveals a deficient view of Jesus because this, these three tents kind of imply that Moses, Elijah, and Jesus kind of each get one. They're all on equal footing. It's right after that suggestion that the voice from heaven comes to kind of set the record straight. This is my beloved son. This is my chosen one. Listen to him. Now, you have to hear that as a faithful Jew. You have to put yourself in there. Listen to what they had heard. They're looking at Moses and Elijah. They're looking at basically the Old Testament. They're looking at the people who wrote their Bible, the law and the prophets, and God says, yes, I see Moses and I see Elijah. You need to listen to this guy. 
hear that the way they would have heard it. That's the message, isn't it? He is the Word of God. Not only did Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets, which I think they do, but they also are associated with these promises that are wrapped up in the coming of the Lord. Malachi 4.5, we've mentioned that a couple times. Uh, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. We know that's ultimately John the Baptist, but this, is a, this could qualify. He's here. And then for Moses, Deuteronomy 18, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among other brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them all that I command. Isn't it interesting? And he says, listen to him in front of Moses. Listen to this one. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. To fulfill them. More on that when we get to Luke 24. Jesus is the final authoritative word of God. He is the supreme word of God. He's like Moses in many ways, and we see lots of points of continuity here. But they are different in kind. The author of Hebrews notes this in Hebrews 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of the house more, gets more glory than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Right? So he doesn't get a tent, he's the builder of the tent. Hebrews 1, 1, long ago and in many times, in many ways, God spoke to us, to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And listen to that son, what he does. He's appointed him the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's not Moses. That's not Elijah, that's the word of God, Jesus Christ. Peter, James, and John saw the word of God. And it stuck, right? It stuck with John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It stuck with Peter. Peter, in 2 Peter 1, he describes this. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he was received, he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice, this very voice, born from, born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. I'm reading from 2 Peter 1, verses 16 and following. And then Peter says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So not only did Peter see Jesus as the supreme word of God, the, the thrust, the main point of all the Bible, all history, all of life, but he, he's reminded that, that this truth about Christ is based on the word of God, the writings of scripture. They're not myths, cleverly devised ideas, but the inspired word of God. 
which is more sure even than personal experience, even than a mountaintop experience. He says we have something even more sure. Later in Luke, we're going to see a man get a glimpse into hell itself. Into hell. Luke is going to be is going to show us a picture of a rich man in hell begging Abraham to send messengers to his family so that they would repent and believe. Don't let them go through what I'm going through in hell. But Abraham tells him this. Luke 16. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. We have a prophetic word made even more sure. Listen to the word of God. Listen to the prophetic word made sure. It all points to Jesus Christ, the word of God. He is the only way to God. And that's our last observation this morning. Number three, Jesus is the way to God. Let's pick up the story now in verse 34. Verse 34. This is directly after Peter's suggestion with the tents, the camping trip. And we pick it up there in verse 34. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The points of contact that we've seen thus far, right, have been especially important between Moses' experience on the mountain and in the Exodus. And what's happening here with Jesus on this mountain. We've seen the glory connection. We've seen shining faces. And here we just want to observe two more things. A cloud and tents. In Exodus, you see the construction of the, the tabernacle, the physical place where God would manifest his glory. And that, manifest, and that manifestation came in the form of a cloud. The Shekinah glory, the radiant cloud that gave people kind of a visible picture, manifestation of the invisible majesty of God. That's what Solomon saw when God's presence filled the temple in 2 Chronicles 7 and what Ezekiel saw when it departed the temple in Ezekiel 10. It was a fearful thing for the disciples to see the cloud, to be near the cloud, because it represents God's very presence. They they know the Exodus story, that it's God's glory cloud that would guide the people, but there's also a separation in fear because of their sin. Exodus 40, 35. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the tabernacle, or the temple rather, would be destroyed later and rebuilt again and rebuilt. But for the next 600 years or so, God's glory is not going to make an appearance until now. And it comes right at them. Shockingly, right? Right at them. In fact, they enter it. And they find themselves inside it, which would have surely meant death. So how do they survive? What's keeping them from being destroyed by God's holy presence? It's only Jesus. Because they're with Jesus. Jesus stands between God's holiness and man's sin. And there's just a great picture of it here on the Mount of Transfiguration. He is 
the meeting place between God and man. So I think that makes us rethink Peter's suggestion in verse 33, doesn't it? One commentator notes that Luke does not say Peter did not know what to say, but that he did not know what he was saying. So perhaps he's saying more than he means to say. More truth than he means to say. Let's build some tents. Perhaps without intending it, Peter is showing Jesus here to be the new and better temple, tabernacle, booth. It's the same word where we get the feast of booths or tabernacles, same word. The place where God's glory and his presence dwells with his people. Let's build tabernacles so we can do that. Well, Jesus is the tabernacle. So let the transfiguration inform, you know, we're coming up on Christmas, the way that you read John 1, 14. And the word, John was there. Remember, he was there. The word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He was there. But there's more, right? There's more. One of the the, the main purposes for the tabernacle and temple is to provide a place of sacrifice, a place of death. That seems to be the topic of conversation between Elijah and Moses and Jesus. We'd love to eavesdrop on that, but we know basically what they were talking about. Verse 30. Go back there. And behold, the two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So if you're looking at an ESV, you'll have a footnote there in verse 30 by the word departure. If you just follow that footnote down to the bottom of the page, you'll see that that word for departure in Greek is the word exodus. They're talking about the second exodus, the exodus of Jesus Christ. And that's where it all comes together. The tabernacle, the mountain experience, the glory cloud, on the way to a new promised land. But it all starts with a sacrifice, a lamb. Jesus is the spotless lamb. He's just said he's going to suffer and die. He is the servant son sent to die for his people. And listen, that includes Moses and Elijah. They're talking to their Savior too. Their eternity depends on Jesus' exodus being successful They're going to be saved by grace through faith in the promised Messiah standing beside them on the mountain. They're talking about the gospel. Jesus is going to die for his people. He's the sinless one that can ransom us from the penalty of our sin. The only one who can pay. And he would do that. But not on the Mount of Transfiguration, on Mount Calvary. The transfigured Jesus on the mountain is going to be the disfigured Jesus. On the cross. Here his clothes are bright and white, and there they will be soaked with blood and divided among wicked men. Here Jesus is surrounded by Moses and Elijah, but on the cross he'll be surrounded by two criminals. Here he's enveloped into a cloud of God's presence, and on the cross he will hang in utter darkness. Here he hears his father's voice expressing delight in him. And on the cross, he would be forsaken by the Father for us. The transfiguration puts Jesus' glory on display in majesty. But the cross puts his glory on display in humility and love 
that is harder to see at first, but even more breathtaking, I think. John Calvin says it this way, For in the cross of Christ, as in splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The glory of God shines, indeed, in all creatures, on high and below, but never more brightly than in the cross. If it be objected that nothing could be less glorious than Christ's death, I reply that in that death we see a boundless glory which is concealed from the ungodly. There is great glory at the cross. God the Son giving his life for us, those enslaved to sin without hope in this world and in darkness and the light has come. Turn from your sins. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He is leading a great exodus out of sin and death into new life, a new promised land. He doesn't stay on the cross. He is raised in glory. In glory. The magnificent Jesus raised. And Paul describes in Ephesians 4 his ascension. He says when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He's come to set captives free. And are you part of that number by faith in him? The disciples are sleeping at the transfiguration. They're sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane. But then they wake up to his glory. And don't sleep. Don't sleep on the most important person in history. In the universe. He's the way to God. That's the way that early Christians were described. The way just like God made a way through the Red Sea for his people to cross in the Exodus, he has made a way for you and me in Jesus. It all ends, this whole miraculous thing ends really in silence. Verse 36, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. We learn in another gospel that Jesus commanded them not to speak of it until the resurrection. But sometimes we know silent meditation is actually really useful, particularly in a world of noise that we live in, seeing what they had seen, silently considering it, responding to it. But Paul says there's also a time for boldness to speak about the glories of Calvary. He tells the Corinthians in comparing the glories of the old and new covenants, he describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 3, since we have such a hope, we are very bold not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that veil remi- remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Oh, pray that Christ would take away the veil. Yes, to that day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, beloved, may we behold his glory. May you know that you are beholding the glory of Jesus Christ. May we worship him in spirit 
in truth. May we pray for those who have a veil over their hearts and their minds. May we love one another with this same love that he has shown us. That we might not only see his glory, but reflect his glory to the world. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that that would be the case. That like the Exodus and the, old, the people of the Old Covenant would look back to the Exodus looking for something future to come. That as we look back to the cross and see the fulfillment of the Exodus, we too would look to the future of your second coming. When you would finally wipe away every tear, finally destroy evil and death forever. And as we wait, we pray we would do so with faith, beholding the glory of Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that would destroy fear of man in us. I pray it would make us bold in sharing the good news, urgent in sharing the good news, as if we were staring into hell ourselves. And, Lord, may it bring comfort and peace to know that you have successfully accomplished your departure and your coming again. And so we stand amazed. Lord, we stand amazed in your presence. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.